From Cobalt headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my friend and colleague, Emily Gladstone Cole. Emily and I were introduced when I asked a mutual friend of ours to join me as a guest on the Humans of InfoSec podcast. She and I are both graduates of UC Berkeley, go Bears. However, between us, only one of us has two degrees. Emily studied both genetics and French. Throughout her career, Emily has held a number of technology roles, including system administration, DevOps, and incident response. Emily specializes in Unix security and is a co-author of a book on Solaris security. In addition to her current day job as senior security engineer at Agari, Emily is also an extremely talented singer and actress who enjoys historical dance and reenactment. Emily, welcome to our podcast. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. We are so happy that you're here. Um, and in fact, just before we started, you and I were chatting about your new role at Agari, where you're currently the first 100% full-time person dedicated to security. Uh, and it seems that you've got quite a lot on your plate. Um, so with that context, I want to express my appreciation for you taking the time to join us today. Well, I, I feel like there's a lot that people do all the time in InfoSec, and it's really important to have the, um, the different things that people do, the different ways that people approach the whole idea of security. Everybody has their different perspectives based on what they've been through. So I'm really happy to be here and present my own perspective and my own background and uh, hopefully encourage some people who are wondering, gosh, I don't think I ever could do InfoSec. I don't have this or I don't have that. Encourage them that, you know, it takes all kinds and it's important to have all kinds in InfoSec. Very cool. I think, Emily, that you may be the first scientist that we've had on the podcast. Can you tell me what exactly does a geneticist do? Well, there's, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that geneticists do. I was, um, I was doing research actually my senior year part-time and then afterwards uh, for the U.S. Forest Service, they were studying pine trees. And one of the things that they were doing is they were trying to figure out how different tree families had come about and if there were any particular traits in trees, any particular species or subspecies that were particularly, you know, fire resistant. Um, one of the grants that they got from was from a paper company. So they were looking at to figure out if any of the ones that made good paper had any special kind of characteristics. Now that's, that's the kind of the, the big picture thing. The day-to-day -day stuff that someone who is working in genetics will do involves a lot of lab work. So one of the things that you have to do is you have to find out what the DNA is of the organism that you're studying. So that involves a lot of DNA sequencing, 
which means, first of all, um, extracting the genetic material from whatever you're studying. And there are many, many different techniques depending on what it is. You, once you get that DNA, then you put it through a number of different chemical reactions to break it down in multiple different ways so that you can then take a look at the pieces and see what the uh, DNA sequence is about. I don't want to get too far down into the weeds, but um, you, once you figure out what is next to what, then you can start by analyzing the output of that, of those various chemical reactions. Then you can start trying to figure out if one thing is tied to another thing. Um, you're building up for example, for humans, there, there are 23 chromosome pairs. You can build up a map of where everything is um, on those chromosomes or whatever other way that, that the organism has its genetic material together. And that can possibly help you figure out, oh, well, it's not just this one thing that correlates well with how tall or how fast the plant will grow. Going back to our pine tree, it might be this thing and this other thing that we didn't realize until now, until we did a complete sequence, was actually related to the other. Um, because one of the things is that if something is on the same chromosome pair, it might be related, it might not be related, it might be completely, um, it, there's a lot of DNA that is essentially just garbage, just filler. And it takes a lot of careful study to figure out what is actually useful to be whatever the organism is in order to actually get it to, you know, grow tall for a tree or have certain hair color or eye color for a person or anything in between. So you spend a lot of time in the lab, excuse me, and then after that, you spend a lot of time doing your analysis and trying to figure out what's related to what, and designing experiments that will help you determine the answers to all of the questions that you have. That is so cool. You know, I, maybe I have this sort of like general picture in my mind of what this looks like, right? So right now I'm picturing you in a white lab coat, like with some goggles on and like glass speakers. I don't know if that's like what it really looks yeah. like, but that's sort of, you know, the visual that comes to mind. And I think it's so mm -hmm. interesting actually to hear about sort of the very sort of precise cataloging and mapping and careful study that you did as part of this type of work. Um, it actually reminds me of when I was watching the video of your talk that you did at DevOps Day Silicon Valley, how to make a security team your best friend. And you know, you've got this very cool uh, and somewhat unique background, which is to say that you started out in system administration and then you moved into information security. And, and one of the things that I took away from hearing your talk was you have this real acknowledgement that to the extent that production operations folks are really sort of doing asset management well, that actually makes life so much easier for security people. Um, and it's just so fascinating for me to hear you talk about 
sort of this careful study and this cataloging and mapping processes in your former lab work. Um, and it sort of like occurs to me like, wow, like in Emily's case, you know, your, I think, detail orientation um, and organization is such a transferable skill um, that it sounds to me like you've used throughout your career, you know, in very different fields. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I feel like every field has its own areas where you have to be extremely focused on the details. I mean, you know, if you're doing art, you have to make sure that, for example, if you're, if you're doing a drawing, you have to make sure that the line ends up in exactly the right place and the shading is super precise to convey exactly the degree of shading or whatever else. And, you know, if you're a scientist, fortunately, there are a lot of machines that will do a lot of this for you, but there is a lot of very precise how much of how much of this chemical do I drop in? How much of that? At least at the early stages, um, when you're doing a lot of replication of some of the foundational work that's done so that you'll get a better understanding of what people have gone through in the past. And certainly for computers, it's, you know, I think we probably, each and every one of us has made a typo on something, possibly run, uh, run something on a different machine than we were intending to. You know, many of us have probably ended up rebooting the wrong machine by accident. And, you know, whether it's that or as you're reviewing a log file, which is something that certainly you're going to do in both operations and security, the more you focus in, the more it kind of opens up to you and you get to learn and observe new things that you hadn't seen before. Very cool. So I'll speak on behalf of our listeners and say at this point, I'm awfully curious to understand how you made the transition from doing this kind of lab work to getting into computing. Well, so as part of the DNA analysis, there is all of the hands-on stuff that you, you do in the lab. And yes, I did have that white lab coat. I had my safety goggles. Um, you know, I had my hair tied back all the time. Um, but there is also the, the computer component because once you've got your, your DNA sequences of all the various bits, then you have to put them into the computer for analysis. And um, at least when I was getting started, they didn't have a lot of stuff automated and at least the U.S. Forest Service didn't um, because DNA analysis wasn't a core thing that the Forest Service does a lot of or did at least in the bits that I was in. So we, um, my team ended up doing a lot of those things by hand and that involved, uh, you could see the, the kind of look of resignation on the scientists' faces when they sat me down to show me how to do all the computer stuff and they realized that because I already knew how to use the computers that it was actually going to be pretty easy for me to take over some of those things. And I was just, I was really fortunate because I had actually never taken a computer class in college that I had discovered the computer labs where everybody hung out and played with the various um, workstations. And even there were a few terminal servers back in the day and got onto Usenet and started using the web. 
And so I had picked up a lot from my just casual use there and, you know, emailing back and forth with friends. I had to know how to use the computers. And so that, it helped me immeasurably. They said, wait, you know how to do this. Um, How would you like it if we give you a job that will pay you more and not require you to work in a lab that if a chemical gets spilled, we have to evacuate the whole building and send you to the doctor. And I said, well, okay, you know, uh, that sounds interesting. Um, There was a lot of, there were a lot of computer aspects of the genetics that I could do and I could continue working in science, but also I could use those fun computer skills I developed and it seemed like a win-win to me. And, you know, from there, I, uh, I went to a bioinformatics company where I was still doing some of the mix of understanding the, the genetic side of things and also understanding the technology. But um, that, that job ended up changing so that I was doing more specimen stuff and very little science. And I just kind of said, well, you know, I'm having fun here. Maybe I'll go back to being more pure science later. But for now, let's, let's see how this whole sysadmin thing goes. And so my next job was purely sysadmin, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I just I kept doing that. I was having fun with it. I was good at it. And, you know, it seemed like a, a, a good next step for me. Very cool. It, it certainly sounds like um, there were some pretty good reasons why you were like, hey, the computer side of things is a little more interesting to me than the lab side of things. You know, I'm curious because you're somewhat of a chameleon uh, to me is what it sounds like. Which, and, and what I mean by that is to say that, you know, you, you have this ability to sort of switch fields uh, and be successful. And, and one of the things I think that's happened in our field uh, throughout your career has been sort of this DevOps thing, right? And I think there's this you know, fundamental idea that's key to the concept of DevOps that you, know, you have dev and you have ops, and maybe in a traditional model, you know, those teams were a bit at odds with each other. Um, certainly, um, there are reasons why um, an operations team might be a bit at odds uh, with a security team. Uh, I remember myself as a as a um, a younger version of myself, um, you know, sitting down with somebody in ops and with a CIS uh, hardening standard and and saying, "Hey, you know, would you sit with me uh, and could we go through this together and talk about?" you know, how to create sort of a gold standard. And this particular experience, uh, the person I was speaking to was very, very uninterested (laughs) in having the conversation with me uh, and not particularly interested in the things that I had to say. And and it was because uh, this individual had uh, different priorities and different work objectives. And so my question for you is, you know, having moved from operations to various security roles throughout your career, you know, what does, what do those relationships look like from your perspective? Um, And what are some things that, 
maybe security people might keep in mind when dealing with ops people? What are some things that ops people might keep in mind when dealing with security people, uh, seeing as how you yourself uh, have been in those roles before? Well, um, so the, the, the biggest thing that I would say to each of them is, hey, um, I, I understand you are really focused on keeping the business running, and um, I want you to think about the other side of things, because they are also, in, in their own way, doing their own things are doing what they can to keep the business running. Um, the operations teams are trying to make sure that the site is available, that it's, um, that it's responsive, that the business of the company can continue to be done. And also in the meantime, they're, they're looking at keeping releases flowing. They're looking at um, helping out on the the dev folks if they have questions, but you know at the same time the security team is also focused on keeping the company up and running. It's just the things that they are doing are not as much about purely keeping things available, but questioning what are the things that do need to be available. Um, how can we make sure that we are doing all of these tasks that need to be done every day in the way that poses the least risk to the company. Um, you know, so security definitely needs to understand that business needs are sometimes going to triumph over the desire to keep everything as securely configured as possible. And they need to keep that in mind and think about that. And the operations folks need to keep in mind that when the security team is trying to put some standards in place, trying to put some changes in place, they are not, at least I hope they're not, and uh, trying to do this with the spirit of just putting in restrictions for the sake of it, but they, they really are trying to help make everything in the company more robust from a security perspective and help keep everybody safe. That's pretty cool. I, I hear you saying, you know, there's something to just giving the person on the other side of the table the benefit of the doubt and finding common ground in terms of business goals that, that you're both trying to support. Um, yeah. I really appreciate hearing your perspective on that. Um, yeah. Well, the Go ahead, Emily. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> so, so the other thing that, that I want to add to that is the thing that I have really, really liked about the DevOps movement is the notion of empathy and understanding and just making sure that, the, that everybody does approach things from the idea that we are all on the same side and the more that they know whether the they is the dev side or the op side knows about how the other side of things has traditionally operated and the things that they are traditionally doing, um, the easier it is for both sides to 
work together and, you know, combined, they really are stronger because the more that Dev understands the, the uptime and availability and response time concerns that ops have, the more they can take that into their software engineering and the more that the operations team understands the, the constraints and starts doing things in a more formalized manner with code and automation, um, the more that they will appreciate the development perspective and the ways that they approach problems. And I think that the same kind of empathy will work really, really well um, when to security, as security works with these other teams. There shouldn't be, I know that there still is, but there I really believe that we don't want to have people who are giving a because I said so type of justification. I mean, it doesn't really work on us when we're kids, right? <laughs> we just, we get more stubborn when we, when, you know, mom or dad says, no, you've got to do it because I said so. Yeah. We all, you know, little kids grow up saying why. Yeah. You know, there's there's a phase where where you give them an answer and they say why. Well, I don't think we lose that. Um, you know, the the smartest and best people that I've worked with are always learning, are always asking why. And if we can approach things from the perspective of, hey, let me share something with you, let me share knowledge, let me help you understand, then I think we can build stronger teams, all of us working together and understanding why it'll help us make better choices for companies. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. I have a three-year-old daughter and it is really fascinating to me. The times like this morning, we're getting her ready to go to school. We're getting her ready to go to preschool and I'm feeding her baby brother who is three months old and she climbs on to the back of my nursing chair and she spits on me and I'm like don't do that <laughs> and she's like why um and so you know maybe it's not the perfect example but I can certainly relate to um you know from a parent's perspective you know having a young child who she's at this point in her life where she is just obsessed with learning and for her there's a lot about her approach to learning, which I think is natural for all children, there's like a ton of trial and error. Um, you know, while we're on the topic of learning and asking why, um, and also with regards to building stronger teams, um, I understand you're a mentor for the SANS Women's Academy. Um, and I'd like to ask you, why do you do that work? Why do you do mentorship? Um, and what are your thoughts on anyone um, who might choose to become a mentor themselves? Okay, well, there's an awful lot there. Um, let me start with my own personal motivations. I definitely had people who um, still do have um, throughout my career who, when they saw me trying to figure things out, encouraged me gave me resources, gave me pointers to more information, said, hey, you know, maybe you should take this class. Well, do you think you're, you know, you might want to look into this kind of work or this kind of job? And um, I 
I've always really appreciated those people who have helped me out in various ways, you know, whether it's getting me tickets to a conference that was otherwise sold out and so I could go and learn, or just encouraging me um, as I was looking to change careers into security. It was it was really, really helpful to me. And obviously we all know that there are not as many women in computer security as certainly as, as represents the whole population. I think the figure that I heard thrown around is about 11%. Mm-hmm. And so there, to me, there are two big parts to that. One is just encouraging the women who are uh, interested in security, helping them learn the things and helping them see that, yes, there are women who are in the industry who have, who are doing it, who are happy, who are, uh, who, who have been doing it for a while. And two, providing them the resources to help and encourage them to stay in the industry because there's, if, if women keep leaving at a higher rate than men, then there's almost no way we can fill the pipeline big enough to increase the representation. And it's not, it's not just about gender. Um, You know, there, there aren't a lot of minority folks. And I think there's, there's a lot of room for that. Like me coming up from my non-computer science background, I have, maybe it's a, a scientific way of approaching things, but it's, it's different from, the way that people approach things when they've gone through a traditional computer science program. And just as my schooling affects how I approach problems, so too my background does. And, you know, different cultures approach things different ways. And there are, there are different cultures all over, um, whether it's a, a gender background or a um, an ethnic background, a racial background, religious perspectives, it brings people uh, to the table with different skills. And the more that you can encourage those skills and those people asking their questions and approaching problems in different ways, the more potential issues you can uncover, you can address. And it, it really, it helps us all remember to continue to question um, and you're in the genetics program I was taught okay you build a hypothesis but you also have to only find data that will prove you right you mm-hmm. also have to look and find data that will prove you wrong to make sure you're not just looking at at one side of things and throwing out everything that doesn't agree with you and that approach is really valuable as well in um, in operations and in security. As you're trying to get a complete picture, you have to say, okay, well, what what data fits fits in this model proves me right. What data doesn't fit and proves me wrong? And the more ways you can think of to ask that question, the more perspectives you can bring in asking those questions and helping you discover potentially laws or potential new solutions, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. You know, I think 
in some ways where our conversation has ended up has brought us a bit back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, when we were talking about um, you and your new role at Agari as, you know, sort of the one security person, uh, I understand you're bringing out an intern pretty shortly, but all of the various problems that you have in front of you to solve all of the various challenges. Uh, and we certainly have in the industry this massive talent shortage. Um, and a lot of the professionals are suffering um, from stress-related conditions and burnout uh, as a result of that. And, and I have this personal theory, actually, that the industry has this like talent shortage problem, and we also have this diversity problem. And so I just, you know, I, I'm always curious and wondering, like, how can those two things kind of come together and maybe, you know, solve these two different parts of the puzzle? Emily, I can't believe it, uh, but we've come to the end of our interview time. Um, I do want to close uh, with a question for you that has to do nothing with security or technology. Um, I want to ask you about your dance and your singing and your acting, um, <laughs> because I understand that's also a big part of your life and who you are. Uh, and the question I have is, can you tell me what you love about doing those activities? Wow. Wow. That's, that's a great question. First of all, um, as with your, your typical computer professional, you don't, you, you don't move around a lot as part of your job. You know, you're, you're sitting at a desk. I mean, maybe you have a standing desk but about the only exercise you get is walking to and from meetings. And for me, being able to move around is really important. It just, it makes me feel better. And so dancing has always been a great outlet for me for that. And I got into the historical dancing um, and also the, the singing and acting part of things as a result of a dance group I was in. And they said, hey, we want you to, to come and work at the Dickens Christmas Fair, which where everybody dresses up in a Victorian outfits and they pretend it's Christmas time. It's like the Renaissance Fair people may have gone to uh, around the country in the U.S., but with uh, Victorian England and the works of Charles Dickens. And so I started doing that. And there was a lot of dancing and the costume and then there were just more and more groups that said hey come do this thing come do that thing come do more dancing and it just it's a great break for me from the stresses and the pressure of security it's it's completely separated however they have found that dancing is a great thing for people who have mathematically and technically inclined that the patterns of dancing tend to be uh, pretty easy for them to understand. So it's, it's something that's easy. It's something that's fun. It gets me moving. It gets me spending time with my friends. And I, another thing that goes back to the mentorship is I really love the light that comes into people's eyes when they 
really get something and whether that's explaining a technical concept to them or seeing them finally figure out how to do a walk it's it's just wonderful to be able to share my knowledge with people and so that's it it helps keep me happy that's that's so wonderful Emily, thank you so much uh, for your generosity today uh, in sharing your story with us and who you are. Um, you know, I, I at one point had this impression of you as like a chameleon, you know, and you are so many things, um, as we all are. Uh, and I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I had a great time. If you're interested in exploring additional resources mentioned in this podcast, you can sign up for our Humans of InfoSec recap at resource.cobalt.io/humansofinfosec. You can also find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. Thanks for listening.